So we continue our passage in Philippians, the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2, 1 through 11. Philippians 2, 1 through 11. I know that's a bigger section, but I figured 2 verses 1 through 4 belongs with 5 through 11. Because one has to do with our practice and the other part deals with who our model is, who is our pattern, our paradigm, Christ. So the two belong together. So verse 5 will be our, you could say our text, because that kind of like, that's kind of like the bridge between verses 1 through 4 and 6 through 11. So that'll be our text. And our text is verse 5, which reads, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So we're talking about a Christian mindset, which is so absolutely different in contrast to the mindset of the world. Right? Two different mindsets. And Apostle Paul is really concerned. He continues with his concern with the Philippian congregation that he wants to see growth in the mindset of Christ in the congregation, because what a powerful witness that is to the city of Philippi. Uh, they're, though small, the Lord will use it to reflect his beauty, the beauty and his glory in, in that city. And that's also our prayer for us as a congregation. It really continues on the heels of 27 to 30 from chapter 1, but we continue verses 1 through 11. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, fulfill my joy by being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit. But in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out, not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. Mind, you can also say attitude, but it's more than attitude. It's really what shapes your, your being. Let this mind in you, in which, in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant or a slave, and coming in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven, and of those on earth, and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. That's our passage for today, verse 5 being our, our focus, our text, and we're going to consider those two parts, right? The practice of the church, the mind of Christ, and that's reflected in the practice of the church, but our pattern 
is Christ himself, the one who came to redeem us for this. So yeah, we continue really on building up on what we heard last week. Actually, this passage builds on verses 27 to 30. Remember, we're hearing from Christ himself through the Apostle Paul. Where's the Apostle Paul? In a dungeon, in a prison, chains on his arms and on his legs, continually being there, guarded by a guard. But, you know, is he thinking about himself? He's not even thinking about himself. He is so much... Who's he thinking about much? He's, he's being totally unselfish, right? He's thinking about the church. He's thinking about the church in Philippi, whom the Lord used, the Lord used the Apostle Paul to plant this young little church, including this Lydia and the slave girl, the Philippian jailer, among many others, to form a, a witness in the community of Philippi. Philippi was not friendly. Not a friendly city at all to Christ and to the followers of Christ. Right? They were considered a, one of the foremost colonies of Rome. And they had close associations with Caesar. And they really loved the gods. And they wanted to follow the rituals. And here was this little congregation. And Paul says, you stand fast. You stay firm in the faith. And you strive side by side together. And don't be afraid. You're small. But don't be afraid of the adversaries. It's the church in conflict, isn't it? Church is in conflict. It's a suffering church. A suffering church for the sake of Christ. And now... Philippians 2, verses 1 through 11, builds upon this unity. You know, you notice that, right? Stand in one faith, right? Striving together side by side. There's that, that unity that you, you, you work together side by side. Apostle Paul builds on this unity, which the church is to display now in Christ. So what does this unity look like? Well, we heard that. One spirit, one mind, striving together. So, what is it made of? How is it that we strive together, side by side? Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. So important that we're not only showing who, what we're against in terms of the truth of the gospel, we're, we're fighting against the adversary, we're fighting against those who fight against the gospel, but also among ourselves we display a certain Unity, a mind of Christ. What is that mindset? What is that mindset? What is that Christian mindset that characterizes the body of Christ, which is so different from the world? What's the mindset of the world? Maybe that will help us understand a little bit. The world is, the mindset of the world is a, world, is a mindset that exploits, that hurts, that takes advantage of others. It's not motivated by the power of love, but instead it's motivated by the love of power, isn't it? And it's all for itself. All they can think is how they can advance themselves, advance themselves, advance themselves. That's really the problem of sin, isn't it? The problem of our sin in Adam. We need to be converted. 
right? We need to be regenerated by the Spirit of God in order to have that new mindset, the mindset that only Christ can give. And so this mindset is not something we can give to ourselves. It's not something we can give to our children, right? We can display it. But ultimately, it's a mindset which is a gift. This mindset is a gift given to us by Jesus Christ through the power of the Spirit, through His Word. And so in light of Christ's call here, it's really Christ's call. The call here is to to let this mind of Jesus be in you. And we're going to see what that looks like. What's, What's the practice of that mind in the church? Sometimes it can be very confusing what we see out in the world, and it's easy for what the world does to, this, to, to let that um, shape us. But let this passage, may that shape us, may that shape our mindset. So what's the practice? And then we're going to see our perfect model. There's only, how many perfect models are there of this? One. One. There's only one. And that's Christ. We're going to see that verses 5 through 11. But notice how the passage begins. It begins with the word, Therefore. So it's connecting those verses from before, 27 to 30, where it talks about remaining steadfast, side by side, one spirit. And it makes that bridge to 2 verses 1 through 11. You know, this mindset of Christ is so essential. The mindset that Paul is going to talk about here is so essential if we're going to stand firm together in the faith. And that's what these verses address here. And so Christ of the Apostle Paul in verse 1 shows, first of all, he says, first of all, I want to let you know how wealthy you are in Jesus Christ. It's not talking about money. That's, that's secondary. He's not talking about houses and all that other stuff. He's talking about your spiritual wealth in Christ, which the world does not have at all, which explains why they are so possessive. Right? Why the world is so possessive, why they exploit, why they take advantage, because they don't have these things that you can rest in. What is it? Look at verse 1. If there's any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection and mercy, the meaning here is not if, you know, I'm not sure. Paul's not saying that. The real meaning behind the if is since. Right? It means since you have consolation, because you have consolation in Christ, comfort of love, fellowship of the Spirit, affection, mercy. And you know the beautiful thing here is Apostle Paul is saying to the Philippians, to the church, every believer there, as every believer here, every believer has these four things. Okay, it's true for all Christians. The church possesses a a wealth that compares in no way to what the world has. It's far richer, far better, far more glorious, which your adversaries do not possess in any way. That's why they try to get ahead and try to fulfill themselves. That's right. The big thing in the world is self-esteem. Building themselves because they don't have anything else. They have nothing to rest on. But Apostle Paul says, he uses these words, consolation, comfort, fellowship, affection, mercy. 
You know, you ask children in a home, if those things are practiced in the home, what's the, one of the first results for children? They have a sense of stability, right? Security. These are very powerful terms, aren't they? Really, what the Apostle Paul is saying, this is the, the, the power and presence of God among you. Really, the triune God is really his gracious work. It's the consolation in Christ. It's the comfort of God's love. So you have Christ the Son, God the Father's love, and the fellowship of the Spirit, and really the affection and the mercy are really the overflow. Wow, that's really the, the ingredients for what the Apostle Paul is going to say in verses 2, 3, and 4. This is the ingredients, this is the foundation, this is the basis for the call. Really, this is the root, and the rest is the fruit. Without the fruit, if there's no fruit, then there's no root. Right? If there's the root, the fruit will be there. What's the fruit? What's the result? Verse 1, you have it. Christ says, you have it in me. And now we hear the call. Now live it. Live what? Well, verse 2, Paul says, fulfill my joy. How? By being like-minded. Okay, like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord. What's the opposite of one accord? Discord. (laughs) That's what you see in the world. Being of one accord, of one mind. He appeals to this young church. He says, fulfill my joy. How, does, how is Paul's joy going to be fulfilled? By getting out of prison? Is that how he's going to have his joy fulfilled? He's not thinking about himself. This is one of the first characteristics of the mind of Christ in us. Our self is not forefront. Apostle Paul is ready to be executed. He says, will I be joyful if I'm not executed? He'll be thankful, but that's not what's foremost in his mind. What's foremost in his mind? It's them. It's the people belonging to to, to Christ, his blood-bought people. Being like-minded, of one mind, that's his biggest concern for the Philippian church. He says, make my joy complete through cultivating a single mind. We have to see a single mind here, not as, you know, isolated individuals. The church is not isolated individuals, right? But it's one mind, one mind that Christ gives to the body, the body of believers. His mind. Wow. You know, it's amazing. Sometimes you hear people say, Oh, like on a Sunday, I wonder where this person was today. Where was that person today? That expresses something of, you know, when everybody's here, there's this, our joy is fulfilled, isn't it? But when someone's not here, maybe sick, right? You think, well, you know, there's, that joy is not totally there, right? You, you want to see the, the, one, the one mind is such that it shapes us in this way that we want everybody to share in this together. Paul saying, make my joy complete. That's his concern. So how do you cultivate a like-mindedness? How do you cultivate this one mind 
that Christ has given you? Well, by having the same love, being of one accord. You see how the first word in verse 2 talks about uh, single-minded, and the last phrase, one love. In between, it talks about how that happens, by having the same love and of being of the same accord. He's not saying that, that, that you love the same things, but that you possess the same love, agape love. What is that love? Don't think that the world has. The world does not have this love at all. Right? It's, it's a love to get. But the love that here is, is a gift of Christ is called a self-giving love. It's a self-giving love. It's a love that gives yourself away for others. That's the kind of love that this one-mindedness in Christ produces. That's the Christian mindset. <laughs> That's not in the world. That's the Christian mindset. Um, and something else about this. There's courage in this love. It's not weak. It's very strong, isn't it? This, there's courage in this love for Christ and one another. The Bible says perfect love, what does it cast out? Fear. Fear is, what is fear? Fear wants to protect itself. What's stronger than fear? God and his love, isn't it? God is stronger than fear, but his love is also stronger than fear. What does love do? This love that Christ gives, it conquers fear. Take, for example, a husband. Right? He's willing to take a bullet to his head in love for his wife. He's willing to, to take the hit in order to protect his wife. That's the kind of love that Christ gives to his body. We're so self-effacing, like Apostle Paul is. He doesn't think about himself, first of all. He's thinking about others. The courage of love. He's willing to lose his life in order to protect others. A love of courage, a love without fear. Apostle Paul is saying this because he was seeing some signs of division in the congregation. And and that's why his joy was not complete. If you look a little later in Philippians chapter 4, there was a big disagreement in the church. And it was between two women in the church in this case. Two women whose names were Yodia and Syntyche. We don't know what the disagreement was about, but when you have a disagreement, what happens? Sometimes people take sides. And when people take sides, the body fractures. And Paul implores them. He calls them all beloved. And in verse 2 of chapter 4, he says, Be of the same mind in the Lord. <laughs> right? In the Lord. Let the, let the word of God bind you together. Let Christ bind you together. Philippians 3. You know there were people that were saying wrong things? That was not according to the Bible. And Apostle Paul says to this small crowd, Watch out! Don't let them divide you. He says in verse 16 of chapter 3, let us be of the same minds. Think of division. What is division? Is division one mind? It's many minds, isn't it? It's not selfless love, but selfishness. 
It can't love. It can't serve. Because all it does is protect itself. That's the world. That's where you see the, that's where you see the division. Sad to say you often see it in the church. But, but that's why the Apostle Paul addresses us here. So how do you cultivate that unity in Christ? Very practically. That unity, that one mind, which shows itself in the same love and of one accord. Verses 3 and 4 shows how very practically. Let nothing, Christ says, be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. You know, the Bible talks about a glad submission. Submission in the sense of honoring. Honoring others before ourselves. That's, that's the sense here. And notice the emphasis here. Here the Apostle Paul talks about each member. Right? He says here in verse 4, let each of you... Right? So it, he... He applies it to each and every member because verse 1 applies to each and every member and therefore each and every member, adults and children, right, has a responsibility. Let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out for the interests of others. Maybe you know of a sunflower. Maybe some of you have planted a sunflower. When is a sunflower serviceable? Only when its head goes down and it dies. Only then can that seed be used in the service of others. That's the sense here of selfless humility. The sense of Apostle Paul saying, I'm in the background, but Jesus and others come before me. Isn't that what joy is? J-O-Y, Jesus, others. Oh yeah, you, but that's, you've died to yourself. Okay, that's where you're going to find full joy. Ever wonder why there's so much lack of joy in the church today? It's because of this. It's because of this. The self is put forward first. But you know, this is our story in Adam, isn't it? Selfish ambition and conceit. These are obstacles to cultivating this kind of uh, one-mindedness in Christ. The Bible would call it a sin. It's very, very sinful. We don't have to look to murder. We simply have to look at these two sins. These two sins. These are the two sins by which Adam fell in his relationship with God. Conceit. What is conceit? It's high-mindedness. It's the opposite of lowliness of mind or humility. The Apostle Paul says in verse 3. It's the direct opposite of that. Selfish ambition. What's that? Grasping. Trying to gain the upper hand, often at the advantage of others. Right? Taking the first seat. Taking the first place. Taking the best cookie. Right? Isn't that happen sometimes? 
plateful cookies. You take the best one, and the others come second. That's the world. But that should, it should not be so with us. doesn't mean we don't struggle with it. Oh, we do. But that's why the Apostle Paul is reminding us here. It's the opposite of promoting the interests of others. You know, and this story, this sin is as old as our, as our sin in Adam. That's our story in Adam. And that's a true human story. Out of selfish ambition, out of terrible conceit, Adam, who was made in the image of God, made to have fellowship with God, to live in his love, to live in his, to live in unity together. What did he do? He disobeyed God's command. What did he want to be? He wanted to be as God. He wanted to become the one who was boss of his own life. A Lord. A status that was not for him to have. And this is man's problem ever since. Man's tendency to want to dominate, to control, to have the lust for power, to be like God. And look at all the sad ramifications in our society. Cruelty, hurt, pain, crushing. It all stems from this. Pride. Selfish ambition, conceit are just simply... Two ways of saying pride. And how opposite it is with Jesus. It's the opposite mindset, isn't it? By contrast, Jesus, the last Adam, what did he do? He refused to cling on to his glory. But he willingly relinquished a status that he had every right to. He had that status. But he relinquished it. He relinquished that glory because he had us in mind. He didn't think about himself first, but us. And verses 5 through 11 tell us that story. You know, we talk about heroes. If anyone should be our hero, this is our perfect hero. Right? Our perfect hero is Christ. Look at verses 5 and 6. That's where the Apostle Paul says, Let this mindset, let this Christian mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And then in verse 6, Who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. Now what does that mean? I think another translation might make it a little simpler. It says, And he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. What he's saying here is Jesus was and is God. He was in the form of God. That's another way of saying he was and is truly and essentially God. Not just an outward form, but God himself, the Son of God. This is who he always was before Bethlehem, before his incarnation. John 17, 5, Christ in his priestly prayer, he prays this way. He says, he prays to the Father, he says, he prays, he speaks of the glory he had with the Father before the world was. That was the glory he had. He let that go. He let that go. And yet, 
He did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. The meaning here is that he did not consider his equality with God, his status, something to be, something to take advantage of, something to be grasped, something to be seized, jealously guarded. He did not have, he did not have to grasp what he already had. Think about what you already have. Go back to verse 1. Every consolation, every comfort. We don't need to grasp more. The world wants to grasp more because they don't have it. <laughs> but we have no need to. We shouldn't either. We have it all already in Christ. Christ is so the opposite of Adam, the father of the human race. Adam and his pride, that was the sin. He wanted to become God. This was his conceit. This was his selfish ambition. The greatest crime in history. The greatest sin in history. The root of all other sins. The root of murder. The root of lying. The root of everything else. Pride. Adam was motivated by the lust of power. Not the power of love. Christ in humility, however, was motivated by the power of love. Becoming man. And if you look at verses 7 and 8, it describes his work to which Christ was called to do and for which he emptied himself. It describes his work as our mediator, the one between God and us. Verse 7, he made himself of no reputation. There's two things in verse 7 and 8. He made himself of no reputation. And another way of saying is he emptied himself. And in verse 8, he humbled himself. Those two things. He emptied himself, and he humbled himself. First of all, he emptied himself. How? By becoming man, right? He made himself of no reputation. The meaning there is he poured himself out. Isn't that what we're called to do? Pour ourselves out in love for one another. He poured himself out. Himself he emptied. What did he empty himself of? Okay, he emptied himself, but what did he, did he empty himself of? Did he empty himself of his Godhead? No. Did he empty himself of the divine attributes of God? Did he empty himself of, his, of God's omniscience? The omniscience? Omnipresence? No. What did he empty himself of? I mean, it can't be the fact that he emptied himself of his Godhead, because what's the incarnation? God in the flesh. So we know that that's not it, right? He, he remained God, John 1.14. Right? The Word became flesh, dwelt among us, we beheld his glory, the glory of the only begotten Father, Son of the Father. So I think a better question to ask is, not what did he empty himself of, but into what did he empty himself? I think it's a very important distinction. Not of what did he empty himself, but into what did he empty himself? <laughs> yeah, right? He emptied himself by taking upon himself a nature like ours, a sinful nature like ours, except without sin, became a slave for our sakes. He had your interest in mind like no other. No other king has. But this king, totally different. He came in the form of a bondservant, or literally a slave, 
in the likeness of men. That's what he emptied himself into. Into a vessel. By taking upon to, by taking upon to himself a human nature like ours. Without ever stopping being God, he remained what he was. He was always God. He never stopped being God all throughout his life. And still today, he's still God. And he remains God forever. God now moves his story from even further, from the manger to the cross. You think that was humbling, becoming man. It's kind of like a rich man in the castle moving into the slums. He came into the slums of our existence. But more than that, he went to the cross. He became the worst criminal among the slums, if you want to put it that way, as our representative. And being found in appearance as a man, verse 8, he humbled himself, became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. So from heaven to the manger, from the manger to the cross. And what's the cross? It's a symbol of the curse. The curse that we deserve. The one glorious pre-incarnate Son, the one who had fellowship with the Father and the Spirit from all eternity, was willing to relinquish his status because he had us in mind. He had his chosen people in mind. He laid all that aside. His glory became a man, born in Bethlehem, and then poured himself out in a sacrificial death at the cross. Looking out for your interests. I think Isaiah 53 verse 12 really brings out the meaning of Philippians 2, 7 and 8. What's that say? Because he poured out his soul unto death, and he was numbered with the transgressors, and he bore the sin of many. Christ did not grasp. He did not seize. Did Christ ever show off his divine glory on earth? He never showed off. He was never a bully. He never did his own thing. But he served. And he gave his life as a ransom for many. He was not a self-centered being. But he gave of himself for your salvation and my salvation. Humbling himself, he became obedient. Who did he become obedient to? To the Father. Became obedient to the Father. How far was he willing to be obedient to the Father? Near death. No. Up to death. He was willing to be obedient even up to death. It says, even to the death of the cross. So the worst form of torture. More than that, the greatest form of the curse was the cross. There you see the, the self-giving love of God for you, for me. Wow. He, sur- he never surrendered his obedience for a minute. But what did he surrender? His life. Sometimes I think we're, we want to surrender our obedience in order to keep our life. <laughs> but Christ surrendered his, he surrendered his life, but not his obedience. And he took upon himself our death. 
But the beautiful news is that he conquered that death by rising from the dead. Death could not conquer him. And what follows in verses 9 through 11 is his exaltation. Verse 9 describes God's response to Christ's obedience. As a result of this obedience unto death on the cross, it says there that Jesus has been exalted and given the name above every name. What's his name? Lord. Jesus is Lord. He's the king over the universe. Look at verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted him, given him the name which is above every name. How true is it, isn't it? Those, he exalts those who are humble. Sorry, he, those who are humble, he exalts. But the exalted, he brings down. He lifts up the needy, the poor in spirit. But those who are haughty in spirit, he brings down. But you see with Christ here, right? He was lifted up, lifted up, ascended, seated at God's right hand. He is Lord. And the result of his exaltation, we read in verses 10 and 11, that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. One day, every knee of everyone who has ever lived on this earth will bend the knee to him. And every tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's he saying here? Does this passage say that all people will confess Jesus from the heart, willingly? Uh Uh-uh. What he's saying is, all will confess him, yes, some willingly, but others not willingly. This passage, by the way, this verse comes from Isaiah 45, 23, 24. That's our interpretation of that, that passage. Isaiah 45, 23, and 24, where God says through Isaiah, Before me every knee will bow, by me every tongue will, will swear, will confess. And then he has the first group, the believers. They will say of me, In the Lord alone are righteousness and strength. But to those who do not believe, all who have raged against him will come to him and be put to shame. All will confess. Believers willingly unto eternal salvation, but unbelievers, those who are unwilling, unto eternal condemnation. And so Paul says, now in terms of application, the implications for us today, seeing this, seeing your hero, you know, we can't find this in ourselves, this mindset. It's not in us. Who, who kept that mind? Who is that mind? Christ, the only one. And out of him, by faith in him. That's why verse 3, we hear these words, fulfill my joy, being like-minded, having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem others better than himself. That's the life, this mindset this life of Jesus we receive through faith in Christ who gave himself as the perfect sacrifice for us. In him, it's only in him we can truly die to selfish ambition and conceit. That's a lifelong struggle, isn't it? That's in here. It's so lodged deep in here. Selfish ambition and conceit. 
But only in Christ can that begin to die in us. And what replaces it? Something beautiful, something truly human. What is it that's truly human? Self-giving love, giving yourself away to others in love. Humbling ourselves, self-effacing, self-effacing humility. The beautiful thing is this gift of the communal, Christ-like like mindset is his gift to us through the working of the Holy Spirit. Thank God for the gift of the Holy Spirit because he helps us, he strengthens us to fight against ourselves, to die to ourselves, to put ourselves in the background and putting others before ourselves. Jesus first, others second, me last. What does that spell? Joy. Again, why are so, people, so many people not having that joy today? Because they reverse that order. They want to say, Yoj, or Moj, myself, maybe God, and then others. There's no joy in that. You'll never find satisfaction. You'll never find it. We need to go to Christ to receive this gift, this mindset. And we need to pray, continually pray day by day for that working of the Holy Spirit to die to ourselves. And only as we die increasing to it, will that joy continue to grow more and more. Fulfill my joy. That's even Christ's prayer. Fulfill my joy. He's the one who gives it. He's the one who gives it. And he gives it so freely when we ask him. He's so generous. He gives that to us. It's a gift. It's a gift. This gift he calls for us to use, to put it into practice. Oh, it takes effort. It takes a lot of work. It takes a lot of repenting every day. Lord, I put myself forward again and I didn't even think of the other person. When we think about ourselves, what happens? It's hard to serve others because we don't think about them in the first place. We don't think about it. So we don't even think about it as being a sin. That's because we're thinking about ourselves. We're not here as a collection of isolated individuals, but a body with a new mind. I came across this quote from Richard, sorry, from Edward Welch, a beautiful quote. He talks about what that caring body looks like. He says, imagine an interconnected group of people who entrust themselves to each other. You can speak of your pain, and someone responds with compassion and prayer. You can speak of your joys, and someone shares in them with you. You can even ask for help with sinful struggles, and someone prays with you, offers encouragement and hope from Scripture, and sticks with you until sin no longer seems to have the upper hand. There's openness, there's freedom, there's friendship, there's bearing burdens together and giving and receiving wisdom. No trite responses. And Jesus throughout it all, Jesus is throughout it all. And we all want more of this. Isn't that true? Because sin is still here. We all want more of this. We want more of that. That that joy may become more and more complete. May the beauty of Christ shine out from us in the midst of a crooked and wicked generation. May we, as Apostle Paul says in Philippians 3, shine out as 
lights to the world. Who's Lord? Who's the one who's able to put this in us? Who's stronger? Jesus or the devil? Jesus. He conquered. He sits at the right hand of God. He's on the throne. You know the world that Paul knew? The world we knew? No, it's really no different. The world is no different than it was a thousand years ago, than it was six thousand years ago. The world of Caesar's power and might is now being turned upside down through the gospel. And as Lord, what's Christ doing? He is supplanting the divisive, power-seeking mind of the world, which wants to crush, which wants to hurt, which wants to give pain. And through that, Christ is planting living communities of faith with a new mindset characterized by a self-giving love and a selfless humility. That's the power of Christ. This is strength, not weakness. Look at Christ. Was that weakness? To the world it looks foolish. To the world it looks weak. But he is exalted. He is on the throne. This is the power of Christ in us. Him exalting, self-abasing. This is victory. It's real life. It's real joy. And Christ offers it as a gift. And a continuous gift. That we may grow and have that joy fulfilled. You know what? What's coming? Better days or worse days? The world says worse days are coming. We shouldn't speak that way. Better days are coming. Who's on the throne? Jesus. And all the kings of the world are in his hand, under his sovereign control. Jesus will return. He will make all things new. And his people shall be exalted. Those who humble themselves will also be exalted with him to reign with him forever and ever and ever. And this is the gift of God's grace to all who believe. You don't have to do anything for it because he did it for us perfectly. We embrace it by faith. From sorrow, toil, and pain, and sin, we shall be free, and perfect love and friendship reign throughout all eternity. Amen.